You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. For centuries, financial markets have been the clearest reflection of mankind's collective emotion. As those human emotions have swung from greed to fear and back again, stock, bond, commodity and real estate prices have reflected those swings, gyrating back and forth, soaring and then crashing as our inability to be rational actors drives the process in both directions. And while artificial intelligence may one day, perhaps soon, change that dynamic, For the time being, it's still we humans, with all our emotional frailties, who dictate the direction of financial markets. For eight years, markets have been surprisingly calm, moving higher in as orderly a fashion as we could ever hope for. And while there have been a few hiccups along the way, the combination of central banks and automated trading strategies have combined to dampen human volatility to the extent that markets seem almost unable to fall. But what can a study of human emotion of confidence and mood teaches as we try to look for signs that normality might return to markets? And how can we use game theory to help us pinpoint when that return might come? This week, on Adventures in Finance, Common Knowledge and the Confidence Game. Today is the 29th of November 2017 and welcome to episode 44 of Adventures in Finance. I am not sitting next to James, which is always a boon for us both. I'm sitting in a cold but sunny New York City, Um, perfect time of the year to be here. And James, you are still in the sunny but warm Caribbean. How are things down there? I got to be honest, I'm really tired. Wait, say that again? Are you putting on an American accent? Uh, no, it's just how it sounds like you went, I gotta be honest. I gotta be honest. <laughs> well, obviously, we need, we need to update the Twitter followers. I did see some uh, people ribbing me that they were following you, so obviously I've blocked them immediately. <laughs> but um, what are we up to this week? Uh, we are up to 316 followers. 316? So, still climbing. This is amazing. Yes. The magic 319 is in your sights, my friend. Yeah, I know. In I your sights. <laughs> Hey, now, listen, before we get to this week's, uh, this week's feature, I want to just quickly go back to our Tesla episode. I just want everybody out there to know I've, I've spoken to a few Tesla bulls. I'm still waiting to get one that we can put on um, uh, to go up against Mark's case, but I haven't forgotten this. So anyone out there that hasn't heard the Tesla podcast, A, I would suggest you go back and listen to it. 
uh, and B, if you are a bull of the company, not the stock price going up, but you want to come on and uh, give the other side to Mark Spiegel's arguments about why the company is going to succeed, then we would turn the microphone over to you and allow you to do that, obviously remembering that this podcast is PG-rated. Um, so uh, the, the offer still stands. I, you know, I've got close with a couple of people. Um, and one guy is still debating whether he's going to actually come on and, uh, and put himself in the spotlight. So we will see. But again, the offer still stands. Any Tesla bulls out there, don't be shy. Come forward and let's talk about the upside of the company. But let's put Tesla aside for this week because we have two fantastic guests and we're going to talk about something that I find truly, truly fascinating. And that is market mood and confidence and uh, the game theory that surrounds this wonderful world that we all find ourselves in. And to do that, we've got two amazing guests joining us. Uh, first up is Peter Atwater. Peter is the CEO of Financial Insights, and he's someone that I've relied on a lot um, in the last couple of years to help me understand subtle shifts in mood that might indicate turning points in markets. And coming up later is Dr. Ben Hunt, the chief risk officer of Salient Partners and the author of the truly, truly excellent Epsilon Theory, which if you don't subscribe to now, uh, Google it sign up it's free and it is just an exceptional letter and ben is an expert in game theory and whenever i sit and talk to ben uh it's just a fascinating conversation that could go deep into the night but luckily for you guys uh, i'm going to start the stop clock so that but you don't listen to ben and i drone on for hours on end but first up let's get to peter atwater so peter welcome to adventures in finance thank you so much for joining me today great glad to be here grant now, I, I, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I, and I think uh, that what you do is, is so important at periods like this where we're, we're clearly getting to some kind of turning point and, and people kind of look for that to manifest itself in markets. But I think um, what you do is a way of perhaps understanding those shifts before they manifest themselves in markets. So perhaps we could kick off just a, a, a little bit about what you do, and then I want to talk to you about uh, what, you've, what you've so beautifully called the backlash era. So what I do is I spend my days looking at the relationship between confidence and decision-making. Uh, I think that is the invisible hand, as it were, that drives what we do. And what's so interesting to me and why I think this is so important is that our level of confidence transcends all of our decision-making at once. So looking at political decision-making, social decision-making, cultural decision-making, investment decision-making, they all seem to move in a parallel pattern. So uh, it's, it's always important to me to be looking outside the markets in order to get a sense as to what should be and, and is likely ahead to be happening in the markets. That's funny because you know I, I travel around a lot and, and I'm always seeing little things that that just I don't know they they just ring slightly odd to me and 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 it might be just the, the way I see certain people dressing or just a change in people's attitudes you know in a Starbucks it's it's all these little things and I never really know where they fit in which is which is where you come in because you have a way of actually um, putting these things into context and explaining why these we these very slight changes are important. So, so you know, how do you go about doing something like that? So I, I completely agree with you. And, and the way I look at it is, is it sort of like uh, 
looking at the tiles in a mosaic. It's the the tiles are never completely black nor completely white, but what you start to see is the tiles turning over one at a time, and eventually you begin to get a sense of the of the pattern. And and you know, right now what you're seeing is just increasingly behavior that is uh, very me-centric, and that is something that transcends um, whether it's technology and the rise of things like iPhones and Keurig coffee makers to the the tribalism that we're seeing politically. Now, that, that Keurig coffee makers is, is a you know, it's a perfect example to me. This 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 idea of yours that you've you encapsulated beautifully in you know, me here now um, versus all of us everywhere forever. Perhaps you could expand on that because to me the Keurig coffee maker is absolutely the epitome of that entire dynamic. Yeah, I, I love the fact that we can't share a pot of coffee anymore. Right. It, you know, we we each need our own individual brew prepared precisely the way we want it. And and what I found in looking at you know, uh, sort of subjective data over and over and over were these patterns that when confidence is low, self-interest, close physical and ethnic proximity, and near-term time horizons, that, that me-here-now behavior that you talk about, dominates all of our preferences. And it's not just in one thing, it's in everything. And you know, the selfie is another perfect example of that. And what you saw beginning really at the end of the banking crisis was this era of me here now thinking. And I think it's noteworthy that it began in technology and, and what we would consider the social media space that the the way we are behaving mirrors it almost mirrored it almost immediately. We saw the same thing in food, the rise in craft brewing and the the real customization that you need in food versus the the craft and Heinz and the, the big food era of the nineteen sixties. But increasingly you're seeing that migrate into behaviors as far as immigration reform and political decision-making that things that take slower time frames to coalesce are really beginning to take hold. And I, and I think we're seeing that we've already seen that in immigration or what I would consider to be labor migration. But now we're seeing it in, in capital migration. Uh, I thought it was really noteworthy a couple of weeks ago that after the Paradise Papers were published, there was criticism of the Queen for investing overseas. There's been crit- criticism aimed at uh, universities and colleges in the United States for investing abroad. Uh, at the same time, there have been uh, criticism labeled it technology companies for accepting what would be considered or might be considered dirty money from abroad. So we're already adopting me here now behaviors as it relates to how investors should 
and can be investing today. Well, the, the social media thing to me is is very, very interesting because the whole idea of social media, I mean, its very name implies that it's it's to, to bring communities together and expand out and, and broaden your reach. But I think to your point, we've watched it over the last several years become much more about me. It's about, you know, I want the world to hear my viewpoint and I want to post pictures of me doing my stuff and looking great. And, and it really has very clearly morphed into more of a self-promotional tool uh, in many cases than uh, this, this great noble way of bringing communities and societies together of like-minded people. Well, what it, what it has done is created, it's morphed from let me tell you about me to let me follow people who are like-minded the way I am. Right. And so it's, it's forming uh, these mini-tribes. For, for people listening to this that kind of are trying to make sense of it and, and put it in some kind of context, can you talk about the last time we saw a shift um, maybe the last time we were at me here now and it transitioned into all of us everywhere forever, just so people can think back to that time and realize, okay, uh, okay I, I see where you're coming from as these shifts happen. So I think that the clearest time parallel is the late 1960s, early 1970s, where you had very similar empowerment of women, the rise of outsiders, um, whether it was in the context of race or sexual orientation, but you know those who had been outside of the the social norm have regained a voice and and always do uh, during these periods of of weaker social mood the The norms break down, and you start to see folks um, who are non traditional come to the fore. And I, and I think you could, you could even put Donald Trump in that category as a, as a political outsider, just completely upending the Republican Party. Now, now is, is Trump, is he, the, the, as I said, the manifestation of this change, do you think? Is he, is he a result of it or is he an expression of it, do you think? So I think he is a symptom of it. I think that if you were to look at the chronic underconfidence of of Republican voters coming into the 2016 election and how disheartened they have been in the Obama era and the the things that Donald Trump was able to articulate that were the antithesis of the Obama agenda, he really was able to coalesce a group in opposition to Hillary Clinton. And to me, it's not a surprise to see that at every turn, Trump continues to try to use Hillary Clinton as that cohesion point. Um, These are times where my enemy's enemy is my friend, and having that common enemy is so important in keeping groups together who would otherwise splinter on any number of issues. The, the Roy Moore challenge today that is splintering the Republican Party 
he is having to say, yes, yeah, there is him, but but remember, we all hate Hillary, don't we? Right, right. So, so how does this, again, for people trying to understand this and trying to put it all in some kind of framework of their own, we're at a point where confidence in stock markets is extremely high. Uh, consumer confidence supposedly is high, although it's starting to weaken a little bit. Uh, confidence in the establishment is at all-time lows. How do you distill all these various and varying confidence measurements into something that you can actually start to, to, to plan a strategy around? So I think that investor confidence is high, but the means of investing today is an indicator of behavioral weakness. Uh, investors are choosing to put their money in passive alternatives. And there's a, there's a capitulative nature to that, that, you know, I can't do this myself. I can't do this wisely. The heck with it. I'm just going to buy some of everything. Um, and that's very different from 1999 where individuals believed that they could pick one dot-com company after another. So, so yes, confidence is on the surface high, but behaviorally, the actions don't necessarily confirm that. And, and that, to me, is kind of consistent with what you would see in a bear market rally. And I think that if you strip out the uh, all of the liquidity that the central banks have put in, and I like to use the Dow denominated in gold just as a proxy, yep. what you see is a very clear bear market rally from 2009 to today. In nominal terms, it looks like a uh, extraordinary peak. You know, fourteen trillion dollars of liquidity will do that. Right. But, but behaviorally, this looks very much like the bear market rally that you saw in the you know nineteen sixty eight nineteen seventy two era, where things in the market appear to be okay, but underneath, behind the scenes. The, the social fabric was deteriorating really at every seam. So, so when you look at that and you, and you look at that historical parallel, what, what are your hopes and what are your fears for how this might play out? So from a hopeful perspective, what I think needs to happen is that there is a improvement in confidence among the employees of capital. And I, and I use that word as opposed to the, the owners of capital. Owners of capital have done extraordinarily well since 2009. The employees of capital, however, have done very poorly. And so if there is to be a a success ahead, employees of capital must do better, and I think in many ways at the expense of owners of capital. And, you know, I'm not suggesting an era of, of communism or socialism, but I think that the, 
the gap between those two has become too great to be sustainable. So we, we need to close that gap. And, and to me, it's, it's not as much an economic gap as it is an outright confidence gap. The, the financial elite feelings just wildly more optimistic than the, the, the Main Street voter. And, and that's true, you know, not just in the United States, but I think you could say the same thing in Europe and in some places in Asia today. The, the downside scenario, though, is that that gap continues to widen. And one of the things that I found is that when confidence deteriorates, zero-sum thinking takes hold. And the argument can be made that the, the financial elite, the owners of capital, have somehow taken advantage of, have won at the expense of the employees of capital. I think we saw seeds of that with the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. And I think if confidence were to begin to deteriorate again, we're going to see the same kind of, of social backlash against the financial elite um, really take hold. Well, I mean, this brings us perfectly to to this idea of the backlash era, which is a phrase you've coined. So, you know, I've seen it, we've seen it manifest itself most notably, I guess, in, in big tech, the, the sort of the pushback suddenly against Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about this, this backlash era, what it is and what it might mean going forward. So the backlash era, I started to notice during the 2016 political uh, election in the United States that what we were seeing was political backlash on the far right that had had arisen um, really in, in opposition to what had been going on on the left. And in some ways, I think it also is evident in the, in the continued uh, strength of Bernie Sanders on the left versus a more centrist Hillary Clinton. What we've also started to see is backlash building on and leading to further backlash. So the Women's March in Washington right after President Trump was elected, I would put as an as a example of social backlash that has now manifested in the, the temperament behind these sexual harassment disclosures, the uh, victories of, of women in the elections that just took place in the United States. And what I expect we will soon see is further backlash now against that, that people will be reacting negatively to the rise of women and a, a small tribe will look to, to take back turf that they think they've lost. We're seeing the same thing as you mentioned in, in technology where powerful Silicon Valley 
has been viewed to be corrupted, and so people want to take that back. And I think we're just starting to to see backlash leading to backlash leading to backlash. It's sort of a, a ping-pong game. But what's happening in the process is the the social norms are being tested at every turn. And and that that creates you know more and more fragmentation and more and more divide and tribalism. So so this 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 idea of looking for targets for this backlash because obviously people are looking for someone to vent their anger on. We've seen it in the political class, we've seen it in, um, as I say, the, the Googles of the world, the, you know, the, the tax-avoiding Amazons and Apples of the world. Uh, and we've certainly seen it against Facebook uh, with a whole, a whole bunch of negative articles about the effect that Facebook is having on kids, et cetera, et cetera, and smartphones, what have you. Um, the one place that seems to be going in the other direction, and you've spoken about this and I, and I found it fascinating, which is why I wanted to bring it up, is, is particularly in America, is the military and confidence in the military. Can you perhaps talk about that a little bit for me? So it's a very interesting divide that I saw uh, this summer. You have political, you have voter confidence in Congress at 12%. I think the president's latest approval Ratings put confidence in him in the mid to upper 30s. And then you have bipartisan support of the U.S. military that ranges in the mid-70s. And that, to me, is noteworthy in that it is the exact opposite of what we saw in the 1960s. So just the sense that the pendulum has swung from one very negative view you know, 45 years ago to a view today that is exceptionally positive. And I think that that creates an environment where it becomes remarkably easy for some kind of military intervention in American leadership. And if you if you watch today the the belittling and and badgering that the left and right are doing particularly on the congressional front they are unknowingly um, revealing and identifying further and further weaknesses and reasons for Americans to have lost faith in Congress as a as a real viable leadership group. You have unprecedented polarization of views of Donald Trump. And so should there be an an event a a something that triggers a need for change in leadership i think it is remarkably easy for the military or a group of military leaders to say you know what we are the right choice 
to step in here and restore calm, given the the public view that that again is bipartisan uh, towards the U.S. military today. Now, you know, when, you've, when I first heard you talking about this, it. it, it was like a slap around the face to me because we you know, these are the sort of things that we hear happening in banana republics or or recently mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe, um, and I and it really shook me. But the more I sat and thought about it, the more I began to understand what's beneath it. You know, that this this would be a very different kind of uh, military intervention to the kind we've seen in places like Zimbabwe. But I think the case you lay out is is remarkably and perhaps concerningly plausible. I mean, just just. Um, I mean, I, I've had yeah, I've had but, folks on the left who who have said, you know, uh, you know, without without prompting that they would uh, much prefer to see a military leader than the current administration, which to me is just a striking right. statement. Well, Peter, look, it's 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 just so much fun talking to you. I, I I really value what you do, and so perhaps you could you could give the audience uh, some places they can follow you and, and how they can uh, read what you're putting out because I, I think it's essential right now. So I, I tweet as Peter Atwater on Twitter. Uh, you can also look at my blog on LinkedIn. And also I do a regular weekly commentary uh, to uh, clients um, that's available through my website at financialinsights.com, uh, insights spelled I-N-S-Y-G-H-T-S. Peter is definitely someone you should be following on Twitter. His handle is at Peter underscore Atwater, A-T-W-A-T-E-R, at Peter underscore Atwater. And you'll find his website, uh, financial-insights.com, and that's with a Y. Now, joining me now is uh, a man who's become a very good friend of mine the last couple of years because I've badgered him into talking to me for hours on end. Dr. Ben Hunt, the Chief Risk Officer of Salient Partners and the author of The Excellent Epsilon Theory, uh, who is currently on his farm up in Connecticut, which has been a source of some tremendous inspiration for his writings in recent weeks. Ben, welcome back to Adventures in Finance. It's great to have you with us again. Great to be here, Grant. I really appreciate you having me back on. I, I just think with what's going on in the world today, the way you look at this, the prism you look at these markets through is just so important for people to understand. It's not all about the numbers on the board at the end of the day. There are, there are forces moving beneath our feet that, that really at some point are going to have a major effect on the way markets move. So I'm hoping that we can jump into the, 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 the common knowledge game and perhaps I'll leave it to you to explain exactly what it is because I know I will make a, an awful Mess of it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you do just fine. But, 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 yeah. Let me give a little bit of a, a background on this. I, you know, I think like a lot of your uh, listeners uh, to this podcast, uh, you know, I'm I like to play cards. You know, I like to play bridge. I particularly like to play poker. And, and I think most people are familiar with uh, the the old saying in poker, which is that you don't just play the cards; you also play the player. And you know that that. That that's very true in in, in poker, and it, it, it's just as true in markets. And what I mean by that is, the cards are in a sense the fundamentals. Uh, the cards are the signals that the that the world gives you, companies give you, and the like. And of course, playing the player means thinking about well, who are the other market participants, and are there patterns of behavior uh, that we can recognize, tells if you will, right from uh, from, from from poker. Uh, that, that, that can help us become better investors ourselves. And, and this whole notion of playing the player, not just playing the cards, 
you know, this has a, this has a long tradition in markets. I, I think most traders, in fact, uh, I'll separate them from investors. Most traders think of markets in exactly this way, meaning that a piece of news comes across the tape. I'll use that old, you know, uh, analogy, right. that analog right. analogy of the tape, right? But a piece of news comes across the tape, and a trader will look at that piece of news and say, "Well, do I do it? Do I press this?" Or do I or do I fade it? Do I fade the news? And it's not really based on the news item itself, not based on the card that's being dealt, but based on that trader's intuition or experience or sense of how other people are going to react to that news. So that that's at the heart of I think of applying game theory to markets in general. Um, because game what what is game theory? Game theory is simply playing poker. Game theory is the strategic interaction of two or more players. Game theory is playing the player. So, so this idea of of common knowledge versus public knowledge, because it is, it's such it's such a fine differentiation. But I think it's it's so important. And you, know, you in your in the piece you wrote, you used um, the Harvey Weinstein story to illustrate the difference between the two. Uh, so perhaps you could just just lay that out for people listening. Yeah, sure, sure. So, so the. What I've been writing about or talking about for, for, for a while now is, is one of these critical um, aspects of game theory, and it's called common knowledge. Because when you think about games, and you know, we're all familiar with different aspects of, of game theory. So if you've ever watched any you know, police procedural, <laughs> right? uh, you know, Criminal Minds, CSI, any, any, of these, any of these shows, we're very familiar with The Prisoner's Dilemma. Right, that's that's a game that we're all familiar with, and there are other games like chicken that everyone knows, and then there are lots of kind of variations on all this. But when you think about a game, when you think about playing the player, here's the crucial aspect. The crucial aspect is that not only are you trying to figure out how to play the other players, but every other player is trying to figure out how to play you. Right. This is right. not a one-way street. Right. It's, 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 it's not that you're the only one who's smart enough to figure out how the game is played. You know, on the contrary, we're all smart enough to figure out we need to play the player. And the question is, well, what in the, in the lingo, what emergent properties come out of a situation where everyone is trying to figure out how everyone else is going to behave? Yeah. And and like I say, this 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 notion of what is called in game theory, and I think is the, the the fundamental game of markets, the game of trying to figure out how other market participants are going to react. If you you know go on Wikipedia or something like that, you can look it up as the common knowledge game. That's what it's called in modern game theory lingo, common knowledge game. And what I want to do to to, to kind of explain what is common knowledge and why that is different from public knowledge or public information it's not the same thing as your as your as you as you mentioned in the introduction here common knowledge is information that we all think that everyone else thinks let me repeat that because it's so it's so, it's so yeah, crucial it's, it's not important. it's not it's not public information it can be private information but it's information that we think everyone else thinks and what drives common knowledge? Well, this is the, so now game theory has introduced another concept, and it's called the missionary. 
So what happens, and the, the, the classic example of this is a, uh, is a island, you know, a desert island with a tribe where the missionary comes there and stands up in front of everyone and makes a statement. And it's not whether or not we believe the, 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 the missionary is, is necessarily telling the truth or not. What the islanders recognize, though, or what they believe, is that everyone else in the tribe also heard that statement. If we believe that everyone else heard this, we have to act as if it is true. In the example of the common knowledge game, that would be the case of somebody makes an announcement. Uh, and it could happen through an advertisement. The, you know, the, the, the way that missionaries work is what, what I, where I want to go with the rest of this conversation, because that's what we want to look for, for seeing how this can drive the game in terms of our investments today. But in a, a missionary is, or a missionary statement is, is just something that has wide enough media play that all of us think that all of the rest of us heard it. That's what creates common knowledge. What drives sentiment is this very rational process. It's not by accident. It's not because uh, we, you know, we don't understand what's going on. No, on the contrary, what Keynes wrote about in the 30s and what you know, we've observed throughout markets through antiquity is that we're all pretty damn smart. We're all smart enough to figure out how the game is played. And what we are all, though, hardwired to respond to is the creation of common knowledge through a prominent missionary. And that's all a missionary is, someone who can speak loudly enough, clearly enough, not that we believe it, but that we think that everyone else heard yeah. it. And that's what drives things. So you ask, what does Harvey Weinstein have to do with this? Well, Harvey <laughs> Weinstein is a perfect example to me of how common knowledge is created and how it changes behavior in such profound and rapid ways. And if people want other examples, you should just think of the old uh, Hans Christian Andersen story of the, the emperor's new clothes, because that's the other classic, in that case, stable of how the common knowledge actually works. Here's what I mean by that. The knowledge that Harvey Weinstein was a serial rapist, and I, and I use that word intentionally, right, that he was a serial abuser and rapist of women, this public knowledge, right? I mean, we had, we had TV shows, uh, 30 Rock. Um, yeah, I think you, we were talking earlier, you mentioned uh, Family Guy. Family Guy, yeah. Right, right, right? Where, where they're making jokes about how, what Harvey Weinstein does to women. And yet, there was no change in the behavior of people, right? This didn't, this didn't um, come to a head. This didn't, we, we didn't see the, 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 the actions of people until we have a missionary enter the scene. Who is the missionary in the case? In this case is Rose McGowan. Yeah. Right? And, and so what we're talking about with a missionary is someone who can speak loudly enough, clearly enough, on some sort of media platform that has a wide enough scope and, and um, um, uh, strength so that all of us believe that everyone else heard what was being said. Because even though, you know, jokes were being made on 30 Rock or Family Guy or the like, nobody believed that everyone knew yeah. about Harvey Weinstein. 
right? It wasn't until Rose McGowan takes to Twitter and it becomes this cause celeb where everyone knows that everyone knows that Harvey Weinstein is this sexual abuser. That's when behavior changes, right? And it, it, it here's, it here's whose behavior changes. His lawyers, his board of directors, his publicists, you know, even his wife, you know, all of a sudden they are shocked, shocked yes. to hear yes. that, that Harvey Weinstein is this, is this rapist. And they're, they're saying, well, of course, we're going to have nothing more to do with him. Nothing changed in their private knowledge of Harvey Weinstein, right? They knew what kind of a man he was and what he had been doing. Nothing had changed in terms of the public knowledge of Harvey Weinstein. What changed, everything changed with the common knowledge around Harvey Weinstein. That when a missionary comes on the scene, like Rose McGowan did, and is able to speak loudly enough and clearly enough so that all of Weinstein's supporters believed that everyone else knows the story, whether they did or not, that's when their behavior changes. And I'll tell you this too, Grant, that's when the victim's behavior changed as well. Yes, right? that's, that, that it, it, it gives the um, ability, and again, these are, these are all very rational decisions that are being made, that you can come forth and tell your story now that the common knowledge exists that the emperor has no clothes. Or in the case of Weinstein, you know, truly he was acting, you know, acted with, with, without clothes in a lot of cases. Right. It is that right. creation of common knowledge, the impact of a missionary so that we all think that everyone else thinks something. That's what changes behavior. And it changes in a heartbeat. Once that common knowledge is created, right, the change in behavior, whether it's in terms of the, um, uh, the, the, the show business world around Harvey Weinstein, around the investment world around markets, behavior changes so quickly once common knowledge is created. And, and I think that that's the key for us to think about potential changes in markets. Well, that's the perfect segue because people have now, in their masses, abdicated responsibility for really understanding what's going on. And they've said, I just want to invest alongside everybody else. I want to be in an index fund. I don't want to make any decisions. And that way, I'm almost guaranteeing that 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 dynamic you've spoken about is the case because we're all in the same place. We all know what we all know. What could possibly go wrong? So given that, and also what's the old Mark Twain quote about it, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's right. That's right. You know, Very good. We're at that point now where everybody is herded into something. They are absolutely certain that how this all plays out. So what do you see? I mean, is this going to be something that, that brings a missionary in the form of a person? Or is this a missionary which is going to be some sort of dynamic that speaks to people, whether it's you know a market wobble or increased volatility? What do you see as being that missionary? Yeah, well, well, first of all, let me, let me be clear about this, that the, the, what I'll call the missionary effect, the effect of common knowledge, it works on the way up and right. it works on the way down. So I, I don't want people to, 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 to hear this and think, oh, you know, I'm calling for some sort of market crash. You know, no, on no. the contrary, right? On the contrary, this stuff can drive markets up. 
you know, Bitcoin's a great example of this. That there's no, there are no fundamentals associated with, with Bitcoin, right? It's purely a play-the-player game, and it's purely looking at, you know, what are missionaries telling you? How are they constructing common knowledge about Bitcoin? Or, you know, to use a better example, or, or a, a, an equally apt example, particularly in, in line of your very accurate statement about how uh, so many investors have abdicated uh, responsibility or autonomy in terms of their investments by investing via uh, index or other sort of passive instruments. You know, Walmart is 81% held, the common stock of Walmart is 81% held by passive investors. Right? Right? Right. I mean, think about that, right? 81% of the holders of Walmart are holding Walmart because it's just part of a, a passive allocation. What that means is that when you only have 19% of people who are making active decisions, then when the common knowledge around Walmart shifts, as it did recently, yep. you know, around their earnings and around what the street is saying about Walmart, that they are now, um, you know, they acquired, was it Jet.com? And yeah, so they're right. now being very active on the, on, you know, to compete almost head to head with Amazon, right? It changes the common knowledge about Walmart. It wasn't that, you know, this was private information that they had acquired Jet.com, that they were making a foray into to, to, to online or e-commerce. No, what changed was the common knowledge. What changed was that everyone heard that, oh, they are succeeding at e-commerce. And since only 19% of the stock is held by active decision makers, you can get an enormous run in a stock when the common knowledge shifts, particularly so when the majority of the uh, investments are being held by, by passive investors who are going along for a ride, in this case, a happy ride. Now, to your point, we can imagine scenarios, though, where common knowledge is created about risks in markets such that passive investors go along for the ride on the downside as well. Uh, so it, you know, it, it really does work both ways. Well, it's just it, you know, it strikes me that we've we've had this, and you, your point has been proven by what's happened over the last several years. That the narrative has been essentially, if you want to break it down to one thing, the central bank put. You know, there is common knowledge Absolutely. that that the central common banks, knowledge. Everyone yeah. knows that everyone knows yep. that central banks are not going to let the market fall. That they're going to let that they're going to continue to prop it up. And the question is, what changes that common knowledge? And what I think changes it is inflation. Right. I think that's what changes the, the, that, that notion of common knowledge, to be replaced by new common knowledge. And, and, and look, this is, this is a slow burn in terms of the fundamentals. I think when we look around, particularly at price inputs around the world, we clearly see uh, signs of increasing inflationary pressures. Right? When we look at... Um, uh, PMI surveys, uh, particularly on the, 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 the manufacturing side, but also pretty much on the services side, you're seeing all of those measurements start to, to reach, you know, five-year highs, eight-year highs, and, and, and the like. Where you haven't seen it seep into yet is CPI, consumer price inflation. But two things. One, I think that's, that's in large part driven by how inflation is measured. So that that's one. And two... CPI, consumer price inflation, is always the last piece of the puzzle to get to catch the inflation flu, right? 
And and so what we're seeing with with central banks around the world is they are starting to stand up and take notice. They are starting to say, well, look, you know, financial assets have clearly inflated. We are seeing increasing pressure on 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 inputs. Uh, we think we're going to start seeing it on wages, right? I think that'll be the 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 the, the next big. Um, signal which can trigger a missionary to come out there and say, we have an inflation problem. That's how this stuff happens. That, that's how common knowledge is reshaped and um, uh, reformulated. The, the, so the question we have to ask then is, well, you know, who's the missionary? Who's a big enough missionary to come out there to, and, and be the, the Rose McGowan in this case? Right. Or the the, the the girl who comes out and says the emperor has no clothes in the Hans Christian Andersen story. The, the bigger the uh, the existing common knowledge, the more powerful a missionary you need to shift or change that common knowledge. That's what we need to be looking for, and we need to be prepared because when common knowledge changes, everything happens very quickly after that. You know, it's the, the old saying, you know, that you know, it's what change happens very grad. You know, how'd you go broke? Well, gradually, and then, right. then yeah. you know, you know, all at once. Suddenly, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. That that's how markets change as well when they're being driven by common knowledge. It's nothing, nothing, nothing. And then what we're looking for is that big time missionary statement where we all say, "Well, of course, it's always been this way," and now everyone moves to the exit, either up, like to buy Walmart, or down to sell. You know, whatever uh, you know, assets are particularly impacted by the, uh, the 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 inflation genie and the rising rates genie. Um, you know, that's what we need to be prepared for because it will happen fast if and when the common knowledge shifts. Well, it's interesting because I, when I when I think about this, uh, to me that 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 central bank common knowledge put is. Is, has become so powerful and has been reinforced at every term, uh, yeah. every turn over the last eight years. So even if you know, I can, I can clearly see the potential missionary from the inflation point of view, which will be Janet or or, or, um, or uh, Jerome standing okay. up and saying, yeah. you know, yeah. inflation's getting out of control. We need to, you know, we may need to do something about this. They'll be very careful in their words. But even when they say that, you then come back to this very strongly entrenched idea of the central bank put and then the game becomes well you know will they have the balls to actually do something about this because they know that if they do something about the rate part of the equation then the markets are going to struggle but we know that they won't let markets fall so you know so you just get into that period where people are going to guess and second guess you know my, my gut tells me that they won't risk being wrong at these levels and they will err on the side of the central bank puts just not going to be there this time. Um, and I think to your point, if people do that, because to assume it is when on the other hand, they're talking about inflation getting out of control is a very dangerous assumption to make. And I, and at that point, I think what you talk about is so true, how fast things will happen. And I just wonder I, how you see that world. If, if things start to happen fast, what do you think that looks like? Well, my gut, uh, is the same as your gut, Grant. Uh, I, I, I do think that this is the hill on which central bankers have always been willing to die, which is right. the hill of preventing inflation, particularly wage inflation, because that's why central bankers exist. 
they exist to protect the interest of capital against the interest of labor. You know, not to get all you know right. Marxist on this stuff, yeah. but but that's that's why central bankers are there. You know, they're there to protect the banks. They're there to protect capital. That's 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 that's, yeah. that's the whole ball game here, right? But but here's what I want to say about about making predictions about how this plays out, and this is both in one respect the greatest strength but also the greatest weakness of game theory. Game theory is not a good predictor. Game theory is not a good predictor. And, you know, when we, it doesn't make your regressions run any faster. Uh, it doesn't give you, uh, it's not mean reverting. So it doesn't give you the same sort of, of, of predictions that an econometric analysis of the past can, can, can give you. What, what game theory I think shows you very well, though, is the path that things are on. And the, the, the reason that game theory is not as predictive as you know, many, including myself, would, would like, is that for most games, including the common knowledge game, there are multiple equilibria, right? Uh, you know, a $10 word meaning a balancing point. There are, there are multiple outcomes that are self-sustaining, and what we can only – so what we're trying to do with game theory is to understand, I'll call it the rules or the patterns of the game, again, this emergence behavior, so that we can react properly and quickly when we see, in this case, missionary statements that change common knowledge. So I want to preface all of this by, say, by saying that game theory as a toolkit is inherently unable to be as predictive as we'd like. Uh, what it shows us, though, very well is, is the direction that things are going, and so that we can react quickly and effectively uh, when, we, when we do see missionary statements. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of George Soros has got a you know, great statement. We said, you know, I'm not predicting. We was talking about his investing. He says, I'm not predicting, I'm observing. And I, and I love that statement because Soros, with his concept of reflexivity, that's game theory. Right? That's, yeah, yeah, that's, pure uh, simple. That's the, the form of this common knowledge game when he's talking about reflexivity. And when you read his books about how he actually invested his money, he's, he's a trader, right, in the sense of thinking about playing the other players. That's, that, that's how he's always made his money. And, and the way a good trader makes his money, again, is not by predicting, but by observing. And game theory is one of these tools to help us observe. You know, you, you do this to me every time. We, you and I start a conversation and, you know, we've run out of time and I've, you know, I'm just getting warmed up. So <laughs> we, we have run out of time, Ben, but, uh, you know, I, we have to continue this conversation. Hopefully we can get you back on the podcast uh, in, in, in a fairly short time span to carry this on because it's just fascinating stuff as always. But before, before I do let you go, uh, I just want to make sure that everybody out there listening who isn't familiar with your just superb work gets a chance to hear it straight from the horse's mouth where they can uh, where they can find you and read you follow you well thank you grant that's very generous of you uh so i write under the the the, the heading of epsilon theory uh so you can find the work at uh, epsilontheory.com and i would throw in your twitter handle there as well because uh, you're an active twitterer 
And uh, I, I am, a- I am. So, so, so at at epsilon theory. So uh, that's the that's the 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 nom de plume or the the, the nom de guerre, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, exactly right, Ben. I can't thank you enough. It's always just so much fun doing this. And uh, as I said, let's uh, let's do it again sooner rather than later. My pleasure, Grant. Thank you. Well, I did warn you, uh, think yourselves either lucky or unlucky, depending on either your time constraints or your level of enjoyment. But we had to shut that down or Ben and I would have talked late into the night. Um, again, just to, just to reiterate, do, do follow Ben on Twitter uh, at Epsilon Theory and sign up to uh, receive his intermittent thoughts, which uh, I guarantee whenever they hit your inbox, you are going to want to read them. All right, well, now it's time to move on to our popular Things I Got Wrong segment. And uh, I'm going to bring back one of our guests this week. Uh, Peter Atwater has very kindly uh, agreed to do double duty and tell us about something that he got wrong. So, Peter, it's very kind of you to uh, agree to come back and and expose uh, a great mistake you made at some point in your career. Um, Without any uh, dancing around the issue, I suggest we get straight to it. What the hell happened? So I think, you know, my... My worst case scenario or, or, you know, most humiliating moment, you know, I had spent 2008 helping a group of money managers, hedge funds navigate the banking crisis. And in 2009, early 2009, I completely believed that what we'd seen in the mortgage space, and then the banking space, we would see in the sovereign space that the cancer was the same, but the patients were different, but that the crisis would turn into a sovereign debt crisis and that things would become considerably worse. And as we all know, beginning in March of 2009, the markets took off and haven't turned since. And that, you know, hindsight being 2020, having to go back and and look at what did what did I get wrong? Why was I so misguided? And I think it a case of two things. One, the the notion that what I thought mattered couldn't be more wrong. And I think particularly for investors, um, you, you, you start to believe your own hubris and that be, you, know, you can be right while everybody else is wrong and therefore you can make a lot of money. And, and you know, I think that in that moment... I failed to realize that I don't determine price. Price is determined by what the crowd thinks. And that is so important, particularly at extremes in sentiment. And it's one of the things that has led me in my quest to look at mood. And I think that I completely missed that pessimism. The crowd was entirely one-sided. And that's when markets reverse. And yes, bad can go to worse, but when things are worse, chances are they're going to go to better. And, you know, I I completely blew that. So how how have you adjusted 
your framework to, to deal with that? Because we're, now you've got the perfect chance to put those adjustments into practice because we're at the other extreme. We're at the period where a lot of people are much more confident now. Yes. And so, you know, I've, I've been playing this game with Bitcoin on the other, on the other extreme. Don't get them started, um, Peter. Don't get them started. No, but, but I think that it's, <laughs> you know, here we are and you have the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And what I've learned is a couple of things. One, when it comes to positive excess, things can last far longer than you ever imagined. Nothing exceeds like excess. And, you know, the desire to make money, that um, inability to distinguish fear from greed at the very, very top leads to higher than you ever imagined. Um, and so in, in terms of calling peaks, it's far better to wait until the exhaustion is clear than it is trying to call a particular top. And, and so I think that's one of the things that I've learned. I've also learned that we hate lows and confidence. Right. And that, uh, you know, if, if nothing exceeds like excess on the way up, we will do anything we possibly can to jump out of boiling water at the low. Yeah, that's, that's, that's unfortunately the same as it ever was. And I, I don't think that's going to change because human nature being what it is, we, uh, we seem to never learn the mistakes of history. No. Fabulous. Peter, again, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you very much, Grant. Really appreciate it. So once again, you can follow Peter on Twitter, and you absolutely should, uh, if you're not already. His Twitter handle is at Peter underscore at water, uh, at water spelled A-T-W-A-T-E-R, at Peter underscore at water. And Peter's website is financial hyphen insights, I-N-S-Y-G-H-T-S dot com. Please go and check that out. All right, well, sadly... We've reached the end of another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we leave you, a legal disclaimer with which I'm sure you're all familiar by now, but the whole point of the legal part is that we have to do it every week. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and, of course, the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week, we are going to dig into the FANG stocks, take a look at what's going on in big tech at this point in the market. But between now and then, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And please, 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 once more, any, any Tesla bulls out there who can stand up for Elon and the company, uh, please do drop us a line. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe to us on iTunes. And what was the other thing, James? Uh, reviews. We we love reviews. Yeah, leave us a couple of reviews. Yeah, but you know, you, use use pseudonyms. You know, shake things up a bit. Um, open up a new email address to, to yeah. you know. Yeah, nothing but effusive praise. Obviously, don't bother. Go to all the trouble of um, of opening up a new email address just to tell us how awful you think the show is. Just you know, stick to the good stuff, please. Um, Keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and, of course, podcast episodes. Follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. And you will also find us in the murky corner of Facebook and LinkedIn. If you just search for Real Vision, you can follow me on Twitter, at TTMYGH. 
And you can follow me at AIF James. You really can. That's not even a joke. You genuinely can follow him on Twitter now, which is remarkable. Progress is a wonderful thing. That's it from us. We will see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.